Well, good morning. Welcome. My name is Brand. Like Aaron said, I'm one of the pastors here at River City Church. It is good to be with you. If you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. Good to have you. If there are any ways that we can help you get connected or plugged into the community here, we'd really love to be able to do that. And so, uh, like Aaron and, and then mentioned, fill out a connection card or drop that in the box or just find me afterwards. I'd love to just say hey and meet you. So, uh, this fall, we have been uh, working through uh, our way through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And um, I hope that has been good for your hearts uh, as we've studied that together. I know it has been good for me and challenging for my own heart as, as I've studied and prepped. And this morning, we actually wrap up our series in Genesis this morning, uh, taking a look at the last couple of verses of chapter 11, the first couple of verses of chapter 12, and wrapping up our study there this morning. But if you are new or visiting, just let me recap where we've been so far, because kind of everything in our study of Genesis so far is kind of leading up to this, the moment that we're at right now. So we began in chapter 1 with the creation account, and from the very beginning what we saw is that Genesis is not a book about the how. Genesis is not a book that is emphasizing the how of creation. Genesis is about the who of creation. The whole point of the book of Genesis is to reveal God, to show us what his character is like and what his nature is like so that we would understand who he is and what he's like. And this is especially true in knowing that the book of Genesis was written to the Israelite people as they had just left Egypt and are kind of wandering around in the desert waiting to enter the promised land. And so they have been inundated with gods from many other cultures surrounding them all around. And so the book of Genesis is not just meant to show them uh, who God is and what he's like, but also is, is meant to be a kind of a polemic or, or uh, an argument against the gods of other creations, or other, of other uh, religions, all that kind of stuff. And so Genesis is about revealing the who. It's about revealing the who of God. But we don't just find out about who God is in Genesis. We find out who we are. In Genesis 1, 26 and 28, we see that humanity is made in the image of God, which means that our identity and our purpose as human beings is to be God's image-bearing representatives, to reflect his nature and his character to the world that we live in, to be his representatives. But what we saw from chapter 3 onwards is that humanity, we basically just reject that. We reject our identity and our purpose as God's image bears, and instead we choose to enthrone ourselves as God. Instead of God deciding what is true and right and good, we want to be the ones who decide what is true and right and good. Instead of God being king, we want to be king. You see, and this is at the root of the first sin in the garden, and it's what's at the root of all sin ever since. You see, sin is a mutinous rebellion. All sin is us saying, God, we don't trust your good authority. We enthrone ourselves as the ones who decide what is good and true and right, and we will be the judge of all those kinds of things. And see, sin is a rejection of God's good authority, and it's a deification of ourselves, and that's why sin always leads to death. And so as we continue to read throughout Genesis, we saw sin spreading. We saw it spreading wider and wider throughout all of humanity. We saw it spreading deeper and deeper into the hearts of humanity. And so in Genesis chapter 7, God floods the world and he starts over with a guy named Noah. But the disease of sin uh, wasn't eradicated with the flood because sin is not out there. Sin is in here. And so just as soon as the world begins, sin begins to spread again. Last week we saw how humanity had again banded together in a unified rebellion against God and his purposes at the Tower of Babel. And the Tower was all about humanity saying, God, we reject your good plan. We reject your authority. We reject your purposes. And no, we are not going to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We're going to do what we want to do, not what you want to do. And while most of Genesis 1 through 11 kind of looks like an epic fail video, it's the not top 10, right? It's like the lowlights of humanity. That's what Genesis 1 through 11 really is, most of it. He's, 
You see, there is a ray of hope that keeps weaving its way through all of our passages. You see, back in Genesis chapter 3, 15, just as sin had entered the world, God made a promise. That one day, someone from the line of Adam and Eve would come and crush the head of the serpent, would come and defeat Satan and sin and death altogether. And over and over, when it feels like all hope is gone, when it feels like sin has overcome the world, when it feels like there is no way left out, God keeps reminding us of his faithfulness to his promise through the continuation of that line. See, Genesis 4 was filled with the murderous rebellion of Cain and then his descendant Lamech. But at the end, we get this glimmer of hope in the person of Seth, who it says, calls on the name of the Lord. Genesis 5 and 6 are filled with the deadly curse of sin and the increasing wickedness of man. All throughout, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. But at the end of Genesis chapter 6, what we're met with is a guy named Noah, who it says, who, unlike anyone else in his day, walked faithfully with God. And after the flood in Genesis 10 and 11, where again we see, a, see the spread of sin culminating in the Tower of Babel, which was the physical manifestation of the rebellious hearts of humanity. And Genesis 11 concludes with one last genealogy. But it doesn't end like the rest of them do. It doesn't end like the rest of them do. You see, it doesn't end with a glimmer of hope in someone who is following God or a child or the continuation of that line of promise. You see, the genealogy at the end of Genesis chapter 11, it ends in idol worship and barren wombs. That's where it ends. As one commentator writes, barrenness is the way of human history. It is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. You see, there is no foreseeable future. There is no human power to invent a future but barrenness is not only the condition of hopeless humanity, he says it is the arena of God's life-giving action. You see, God has not forgotten his promise at the end of Genesis chapter 11. Sin has not won. All hope is not lost. The curtain has not closed on the act of God's work. Rather, the stage is set for act two. And what we'll see on full display in act two of God's great plan of redemption is the transforming power of God's life-giving call. It's the transforming power of God's life-giving call. You see, God has not abandoned the promises that he made. In fact, what we'll see this morning in Genesis 11 and 12 is, is God doubling down on his promises. Is God renewing his promises? Is God affirming his promises by calling one man to be the conduit of his life-giving, redemptive blessing? It is I'm excited to show you. So let's pray, and we'll dive into God's word together. Jesus, as we come this morning, we just, God, I just really say, I need you. God, it has been a wild morning already, and we're only at 10 o'clock. And Jesus, I just come, I just say, I need you. I need you to just give my heart focus and clarity as I speak this morning. God, I don't, even if I had, like, the, the most amount of preparation possible, I still would need you. And so, God, we just come this morning, we say, we need you. God, I need you to empower me so that I can speak and teach rightly from your word, God, and we need you to empower us to be able to hear and respond to your word, and so, God, we all are humbly dependent on you as we, as we come to your word this morning, and so, God, like in, in my weakness, in our weakness, God, would you make yourself great? God, would you show us the good news about who you are and the power of your life-giving call as we study it this morning in the person and the, the work of what you're doing in, in Abram and in Genesis 11 and 12, and so, God, we just say we need you. Thanks that you love to meet us in our need, as we'll see this morning. Now we pray these things for our good, 
but more than anything, we pray them for your glory, that you'd be known and loved and worshipped and treasured and enjoyed and, and marveled at as we study this morning. In your good name, God, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in uh, end of Genesis 11, wrapping up in the first couple of verses of 12. Read with me here. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. And while his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. And Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. And she was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Ishka. Now Sarah was childless because she was not able to conceive. And so Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot to a son of Haran and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. And the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so Abraham went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. See, what's on... What's on display this morning is, as the act two of God's redemptive work comes about is the power of God's life-giving calling. There's four things I want to show you this morning about God's call as we study the passage this morning. One, God's call, it brings hope where there is no hope. Its foundation is unmerited grace. It requires total surrender, and it leads to blessings for us and through us. Let's begin. See, first, the life-giving call of God, it brings hope out of hopelessness. You see, like I said at the beginning, Genesis 11 doesn't end with a glimmer of hope. In fact, it looks like that, that flickering candle of God's promise. It looks like it goes out at the end of Genesis chapter 11. See, the genealogy at the beginning of chapter 11, it started with Noah's righteous son, Shem. And it ends where we began reading with, with this guy named Terah, Shem's ancestor, this guy named Terah. And the original hearers of this would have been listening to this genealogy with an eager anticipation. Right? Okay, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? There's always been this one at the end. There's always this glimmer of hope. All right, who is it going to be? Who, who is God going to keep his promise through? And when this genealogy ends with this dude, Terah, and with his family line, it would have been the ultimate downer. It would have been the ultimate downer to the hearers of this. You see, because in the ancient world, names and hometowns, they had a lot of significance and meaning. They told you a lot about a person. I remember looking up my name once. Brandon literally means weeds on top of a hill, which tells you nothing or everything about who I am. I don't know, right? It's up to you at this point, right? I've never really thought that meant anything. Who knows, right? Maybe you guys have deeper insight than I do about what's going on there, right? But in the ancient world, your name and your hometown, it, it really actually did tell you something about yourself and about those you people. You see, the names of Terah's family and his hometown, they absolutely tell us something. You see, Terah's hometown is Ur in the Chaldeans, and that was a center for the worship of the Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian moon god, whose name, I'm not even joking, is literally Sin. 
The Mesopotamian moon god, his name is literally Sin. That's just, you can't get over that, right? You see, the root of Terah's name is the Hebrew word for moon. And the names of his wives' sons, Sarah and Sarai and Milcah, they are derived from the names of this moon god's wife and daughter. And so it is safe to assume that this family, this, the end of this lineage, is not worshiping the God of the Bible. In fact, Joshua chapter 24 confirms this when it says, Abraham and his father Terah, they lived beyond the river and they worshiped other gods. And if idol worship wasn't enough, this seeming end to the line of God's promise is topped with the added ironic jab of barrenness because Abram, his name literally means father, but not only does he not have any kids yet, his wife is barren. And so the picture that is painted at the end of chapter 11 is this palatable tone of hopelessness. And the original listeners would have heard this and would have been thinking like, what? Wait, what? You, you, can't, you can't end. It doesn't, you can't end there. It's not, it, you can't. It, it has to keep going. There has to be something. There has to be some way out. There is this absolute tone of hopelessness, and I'm not talking Princess Bride, mostly dead hopelessness. I'm not talking realistic Minnesota sports fan hopelessness, and that's really bad, right? I'm not even talking Suns basketball hopelessness, right? I am talking end-of-the-line, total, absolute hopelessness. One pastor says it this way, the family line of God's promise has dead-ended. It has dead-ended spiritually and physically. And it is here in the midst of this idol-worshiping, barren family that the sevenfold hope-filled promise of God's life-giving call rings out. You see, in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I am going to make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I'm going to curse. And all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through you. You see, Abraham's family name is fading quickly, but God's promise is that he's, the promise of God's life-giving call is that God is going to make Abraham's name great. Abraham's family line is hopelessly dead-ended in barrenness, but God, the hope of God's life-giving call, it promises not only to make him a father, but to make him a father of an incredibly great nation. Abraham has no one to bless. He has no one to pass on his inheritance to, but the hope of God's life-giving call promises not only to give him incredible, immeasurable blessings, but to give him a family and a nation that he can bless more than that, it's a call, it's an invitation to be a blessing to all of the world. You see, Genesis chapter 11, it's, while it seems to be the end of this, the line of this family, you see, Genesis 12, it serves as the beginning of a line for a brand new family. It's the line of the family of God. You see, and this is a family line that is full of hope where there was none before. It is full of life where there was none before. You see, hope that through this family would come not just the defeat of sin, but the lavish blessings of God for all of the world. And what you and I, as we read this, what we cannot miss is that the foundation of God's life-giving call that creates this new hope-filled family, the foundation of that call is unmerited grace. You see, Abraham is knee-deep in idol worship and childless barrenness when God's life-giving call intervenes in his life. 
He is not looking for God. He is not sorrowful over his sin. He is not mourning his rebellion. He is absolutely steeped in the worship of something else and someone else other than God. And that's what comes in. More than that, Abraham, Abram is not impressive. If you keep reading his story, you will only become less impressed with this guy. Yes, he does have some shining moments, but even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while, right? His story is not one where you read and you think, wow, this guy is just incredible. It's like, really? This is the guy. This guy. How is that even possible that this is the guy, right? You see, God does not choose Abram because of who he is. God chooses Abram in spite of who he is. <laughs> over and over again, this is the theme of the Bible. The call, the, God, the call of God's life, it breathes life and strength and blessing into weak and broken and unimpressive people. Because God wants to get all of the credit and he wants to get all of the glory and he wants to get all of the attention. And so he uses unimpressive, unqualified, unspectacular people so that we will be impressed with him instead of them. That is a really good news for you and I because we are altogether unimpressive. You and I are altogether unimpressive. We are more like Abram in our fails and in our weaknesses than we are like him in anything else. And so the foundation of God's life-giving call is unmerited grace. Abraham does not bring anything to the table. You see, but the gracious call of God's hope-filled promise, it must be responded to. If you want to receive it, it must be responded to. And there's one condition of any response to the call of God's, to the call of God's life-giving call that he gives out. There's one condition, and it is total surrender. You see, verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. You see, the, the promised blessing of God's call is preceded by a single condition. Leave everything. And we need to take a minute to just like soak in what that actually meant because in our like mobile world, the idea of, of leaving everything, we don't understand the gravity of what's going on there when God is calling Abram to leave all those things. You see, in our day, people start over all the time. People move to in, reinvent themselves or because they just want a better climate. I mean, I am often tempted to move to Florida, but I love you guys too much, so I can't right now, Right? Most of, half the time when you're picking a college, you pick it based on how far away you can get from where you currently are, right? The idea of moving and leaving everything, that is, that is just normal to us. That is not a big deal. But that, that idea of leaving everything, that would have been absolutely foreign to the ancient world. You see, where you were from and who you were from was absolutely foundational to who you were. It had everything to do with who you were. And so God's call for Abram to leave was a call to surrender to God everything that defined him, everything that explained who he was. You see, in calling Abram to leave his country and his land, God, what God is doing, he's calling him to surrender his dependence on and his worship of other gods and other deities. You see, the Mesopotamian gods that Abram worshipped and that his culture surrounding him worshipped were portrayed as territorial deities. And so when Abraham is asked to put his land behind him, it means walking away from all these territorial gods that he worshipped and looked to for blessing and looked to for protection. And God is saying, you must leave them behind. 
He had already left Ur, which was the center of moon worship, right? But where he's at in Haran is just another center for moon worship. And so God is saying, you need to leave this land. You need to leave these gods altogether. It's me or them. I will not play favorites with you. It is one or the other you must choose. Calling Abram to leave his people, God is calling him to surrender the place that he looked to for safety and protection and security. You see, the builders at Babel, the reason, one of the huge reasons why they gathered together is because they wanted to be safe. Right? In the ancient world, there is no police force. There is no UN. There is no peacekeeping nations. Right, It is everyone for themselves. And the way that you stay safe is by having a people. And the way that you stay safe is by having a city. And the way that you buy, stay safe is by having the biggest people and the biggest city so that no one else wants to mess with you. You see, there was no police force and no UN. And so when God is calling Abram to leave his people, God is saying, I'm asking you to leave the places that you look to for safety, the things you look to for security, the things that you look to to keep you safe and to keep you whole. I'm asking you to walk away from that. And in calling Abram to leave his father's house, God is asking of Abraham the ultimate thing. He is asking Abraham to lay down his very identity. You see, Abraham is the son of Terah. His father's house is his house. His father's stuff is his stuff. His father's wealth is his wealth. You see, later we see God even changes his name from Abram to Abraham. You see, as one commentator writes, to leave home and to break the ancestral bonds was to expect of an ancient man almost the impossible. You see, what God is calling Abram to do is to leave everything. He's calling him to surrender his safety, his security, his provision. He's calling him to lay down his future and his hope and his identity and the things that define him and the things that he looks to for security and safety and all those kinds of things. But not only must Abraham leave everything he knew and relied on, he must follow God into this wild unknown. If you notice this, God says, leave your country and your people and your household. Leave everything you look to for safety and security and identity and go to the land I'm going to show you. He doesn't even tell him where he's going. He doesn't even give him a hint. It's just like he's saying, close your eyes, trust me. Just follow me. You see, when when God's life-giving call asked Hannah and I to move here to Dubuque to plant this church, to leave the security of the work that we were doing and the consistency of the work that we were doing before this, to, to leave all of that, at least we knew where we were going. And it was like 30 miles across. We were just leaving Wisconsin and coming to Iowa. Like, it wasn't that big. But God tells Abraham, close your eyes, take my hand. He's asking for a total surrender. You see, this is a big hang-up for a lot of people when it comes to responding to God's call on their lives. See, a lot of times the way we want to respond is we want to say, God, I'm in. I'll surrender to you. I'll surrender if. And there's a giant asterisk on it. I'll surrender to you, God, if I know where we're going. I'll surrender my life to you, God, if I know all of the variables. I will surrender my life to you, God, if I know what you're going to ask me to do. If I know what, what you're going to ask me to give up. If I know all of the details, then I'll surrender. I remember discipling a guy in college. And uh, he had recently become a Christian. And he had just kind of come to this realization that his girlfriend wasn't following Jesus and wasn't a Christian yet. And I remember being in this meeting with him where he is just wrestling with this. 
And at the heart of what he's wrestling with is, Jesus, am I actually going to choose to follow you if she doesn't? Am I, am I actually going to choose to be obedient to you, Jesus, even if my girlfriend, who I really care about, even if she decides not to follow you? And there's this choice that was in front of him. And he had to decide in the moment, Jesus, am I actually going to, have I actually surrendered to you, Jesus? Or have I just left a giant asterisk on the end of my commitment to you? You see, the condition of God's call is total surrender, not partial surrender. Not, we'll take it one decision at a time. God is not this divine GPS that's just going to recalculate after every choice that you make to go a different direction than what he tells you to go. You see, the kind of surrender that God is asking Abram for is a blank check kind of surrender. As one pastor noted, we want to know the what and the where of God's call, but God says that all should matter is the who. He's saying, write me a blank check with your life. I need everything. Close your eyes. Take my hand. Walk with me. And the crazy thing is Abraham does. He does. And you're sitting there thinking, how? How is that even possible? Like, how do you make that kind of a decision? How, how do you leave that safety and that security and, and that identity? How do you go into the unknown? How do you leave all of that? You see, the cost is really high. The cost is really great. But what's in front of Abraham is the belief that the one who is offering the call, the one who is giving the call, is immeasurably greater. You see, notice, God does not call him to leave anything. He is not replacing tenfold. God calls him to leave his land, but he promises to give him a new land. God calls him to leave his people, but he promises to give him a new people. God calls him to leave his father's house, his family heritage, but he promises to give him a new to make him the father of a great nation. He promises to give him a family and a heritage and a blessing. And he promises to use him to bless all of the nations of the world. You see, and it's here that we see the last thing I want to show you about this life-giving call of God. You see, it is not just a call to enjoy the blessings of God. It is a call, it is a commission to be the conduit of God's blessings to others. You see, in verses 2 and 3, God says to Abraham, I will give you, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. You see, what God is saying is God was, God was going to use Abram. God was going to use his descendants to be the conduit by which he was going to bless the whole world. You see, his blessings which would overcome the curse of sin, his blessing of his gracious redemption. You see, the blessing God is talking about here is not primarily a physical and earthly blessing, although it is that. Rather, it is a spiritual blessing about being in right relationship with you see, the blessing that we all really need and that we all really long for is to be known by God and to know him. 
And so through Abram, God was going to reveal himself to the world. God was going to make himself known to the world as the ultimate blessing. Throughout the Old Testament, this is the call of God's people always, to live as a light on a hill, showing the world who God is and what he is like with their lives and with their community. But the climax of this promise, right, is that through, through you, all of the peoples on the earth, of the earth will be blessed. And the truth is, Abram cannot fulfill this promise on his own. And neither can his promised son. As one commentator writes, the climax of this promise can only be fulfilled by Abraham's great son, Jesus. You see, as we begin our study in the book of Matthew next week, Matthew begins with a genealogy. It is the last genealogy in all of the Bible. And the genealogy in Matthew 1 traces the line from this guy, Abraham, all the way to the person and the work of Jesus. You see, what Jesus empowers through his blood and by his spirit is for his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. You see, without the spirit of God changing our hearts and giving us new desires and new power, there's no way that we can actually be the blessing to the nations that God calls us to be. And so to be a blessing to all the nations means pointing all of the nations to the ultimate blessing of Jesus. You see, what we cannot miss as we study this morning what we cannot miss is that this gracious, hope-filled, life-giving call of God that was extended to Abram at Haran is spoken to us as well in the person and the work of Jesus. You see, like Abram, we are spiritually dead-ended. Without Jesus, our souls are barren and we are hopelessly enslaved to sin. There is no way out. There is no way forward. Ephesians 2 says that while we are physically alive, we are spiritually dead like Abraham, we bring nothing to the table. Our name is not great. Our works are not renowned. You and I, we are not impressive. And so like it was for Abram, the life-giving call of God that is offered to you and I in the person and the work of Jesus is founded on unmerited grace. But like Abram, we must respond in a total surrender. We want to receive it. You see, the gospel of Jesus requires a complete surrender. He writes this. Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 10. He says, whoever loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves their son or their daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. You see, what Jesus is calling for is a total surrender. It requires that we lay down our dependence and our worship of anything other than him. It requires that we lay down at his feet all the other places that we look to for safety and security and meaning and identity and purpose in our life. We say, Jesus, what we really need is you. What our hearts long for is you. What our, The identity that we live for, that we are seeking to find meaning and purpose in, we only find it in you. If you say, Jesus, you can have everything, my life, my career, my relationships, my kids, my family. You say, Jesus, you can have everything. And you need to hear this. God is asking you in the cross of Christ. He is asking for total surrender. What he will not accept is an ask accept even. God says, I am asking But you need to hear this as well. God never cashes in that blank check all at once. 
You see, what God is asking for is a total surrender without qualifications, without asterisks. And then day by day, choice by choice, he takes ownership of what he has promised. As he invites you to give over to him all of the places of need at one at a time. But you cannot begin a relationship with him with an asterisk on the end. God says, give me everything. And like it was for Abraham, the life-giving call of God for us is not just to receive the blessings of God, but it is to be the blessing of God. Not just to enjoy right relationship with God and all that the blessings that that entails and comes with, but to be a blessing to others by pointing them to the ultimate blessing of Christ in the gospel. You see, you need to hear this. The blessing that you and I are called to be is not this drive-by acts of kindness that many Christians think the mission is. is, It's not a one-week missions trip to North Carolina to build a shed. It is not to feed all of the orphans and to home all of the homeless. Those things are not bad things. In fact, they are, they are life-giving things. They feel good. And the reason that they feel good is because what we're doing is we're honoring the image of God in others. And that's just the default way that we are wired. You see, it is good that we pursue those things. It is good that we work towards justice and we care for the poor in our world and the hurting. It is important that we do those things. But you need to hear this. You see, we are not going to overcome those things in ourselves. You and I, we are not the hope of this world. Jesus is the hope of this world. What we have to offer is not our fixes. What we, the only thing of life that we really have to offer is him. You see, Jesus is our hope, and our hope is in him. And the world's hope isn't us. The world's hope is Jesus. And so the only way for us to be a blessing is if we ultimately point our lives and point our works and point our identities to the person and the work of Jesus. And that doesn't mean that we don't care about the brokenness and the hurting things in our world. But we do, but what it does mean is that the blessing we're called to be is not ultimately about those things. You see, the question this morning that, is, that was posed to Abraham and that is laid before us is, will you respond? More than that, the question is, how, how can you respond? How do you respond to a God that is asking for everything? How do you respond to a God that is saying, I will accept no asterisks at the end of a commitment from you. I am asking for all of it. I'm asking for a total surrender. How do we respond to, to something like that? And as he always does, I think Tim Keller puts it best. He says this, when, we, when you and I realize that Jesus was called, like Abraham was called, to leave his home, that Jesus left the ultimate father's house, the ultimate security, he left his father so that you and I could come home and receive the father. Because he left his home for us, you and I can leave our home for him, for his glory and for his purposes and for his mission, knowing that we are safe and that we are secure in him. You see, you cannot lose anything that Jesus has not already given you and cannot immeasurably replace. You see, and when we see all that Jesus has done for us and when we see all the life of his calling that he lays before us, you see, we will realize that there is no amount that God could fill in on the blank check of our lives would not be wildly worth it. There is no amount God could write in that blank check where we would think, I wish I wish I wouldn't have given it to you. You see, and what we are doing in communion is we are remembering 
and celebrating that Jesus left his home for us so that we could come home with him. You see, the bread and the drink, they remind us of Jesus' body and his blood, which were broken for us and shed for us so that we could be forgiven and accepted by God, so that we could be forgiven and made new, so that we could be forgiven and come home with him. And what we're doing as we take communion is we are proclaiming the gospel, reminding ourselves about who God is and who we are because of all that he has done. And if you have trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Do it as a celebration, reminding you of all that Jesus has done for you and all that he has made possible for you. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. There's two tables in the back, one on the left and one on the right. And during our time of worship, you just go whenever you feel led. And you dip the bread in the juice. And as you go, I would just encourage you, talk with God. Maybe you are here this morning and what you are sensing in your own heart is a barrenness. And that feels scary. It feels hard. It feels hopeless like it did for Abram. I just need you to hear this this morning. If you are sensing that. That is not God's judgment against you. That sense of barrenness that you feel, that it is his loving call. That is his gentle voice calling out to you, saying, I have something better for you. So the question is, what is keeping you from responding? What is keeping you from giving Jesus your heart? What is keeping you from giving him your life, from surrendering to him? And maybe, the, maybe it's the fact that you just don't understand how barren your soul really is, or you don't understand the magnitude of the blessing that God is offering to you. Or maybe you feel like you need to earn that in some way, that you need to be worthy of it in some way. Or maybe just total surrender scares you to death. It might mean leaving your places of security and your safety. It might mean God calling you to leave the things that you look to for hope and security, whether that's your career or your family or your money. I just invite you this morning, ask God to show you how worth it it is to give yourself to him. Ask him to show you the blessings that he is offering you and the life that he is offering you in being a blessing that points to the ultimate blessing of Jesus. You see, the other thing is that some of you maybe are here this morning and you have responded to God's call and you, you have surrendered to him, but your faith, it feels dry and it feels barren. Even though you know Jesus and you know what is true and you have surrendered to him and your faith in your life, it just feels dry and barren. And might I suggest to you that the reason why that is is because you have believed that the call of God was for you to just enjoy a blessing, not to be blessing for the first probably 18 years of my life that's how I saw my relationship with Jesus that it was this incredibly good thing for me that I just really loved the blessing of God and that I loved knowing him but I had absolutely no heart that others might know him and I had no desire to be a blessing by pointing others to the ultimate blessing of Jesus I remember being at an intervarsity conference my junior year, going into my senior year of college. I remember hearing stories about a guy who was just 
who just shared stories about his heart for his friends and his neighbors and his coworkers and people that didn't know Jesus yet. And he shared stories about the failures that he had in trying to reach out to his friends. And he shared stories about the things he would never do again and the failures that he had made. And he shared stories about getting a chance to see some of his friends become followers of Jesus. And he shared stories about risks that he had taken in proclaiming the gospel to friends and in lives. And he had no idea where that ended up. And I remember sitting in that room feeling like the Spirit of God was grabbing me by the shirt collar and saying, this is what I want you to care about. You see, my calling for you is not to enjoy a blessing, but is to be a blessing. You see, in the way that you and I become a blessing is by pointing others to the ultimate blessing, by living lives that proclaim the goodness of Jesus and by speaking words that proclaim the why of who he is. You see, that's the blessing we are called to be. And I just, you need to hear this. There is no more life-giving thing to join Jesus in than to proclaim him to others. I guarantee you, if you want, if you want life in your soul, if you want to get rid of that feeling of barrenness that you have, the way that you do that is by proclaiming Jesus. There is no better way to fall in love with the Lord again than to tell others about who he is and what he's like. There is no better place. You see, I believe that God wants every one of us to, to bless the nations. And we are all flawed and we are all weak and we are all unimpressive. But the one who is impressive is Jesus. And he is so You see, the, the invitation is for us to leave the place where we feel comfortable and to go to the land that God is calling us to go to, not only to receive a blessing, but to receive it by being a blessing. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful for our time in your word this morning and, and for our study of Genesis together. God, thank you that you are good. Thank you that you meet us in our needs. Thank you that Genesis, while these early chapters feel like a, uh, the low lights, while it feels like the fail video of human history, God, we are so grateful that what it really shows us is the inadequacies of humanity and the all-sufficiency of you, God. God, thank you that Genesis 1 through 11 is all about our weaknesses and our failings and our unfaithfulness, but more than that, it's about your power and your goodness and your faithfulness. And so, God, we, we are reminded in the call that we see to Abram this morning of your unending grace, of your undefeatable power, of your great glory and of your goodness. Jesus, we see these things in who you are and in all that you've done. And in the call that you make to Abraham, we see that echoed in the call that Jesus makes to us to lay down our lives and to pick up our cross and follow so, Jesus, I pray for those of us who are here this morning who have never surrendered to you. God, would you make, would you pursue our hearts? And God, would you show them the life and the blessing that you hold out before them and the offer that you have for them? Jesus, would you do that for, for their good, but for your glory? God, for those of us who have lived a life thinking that your call is just to enjoy a blessing, God, I pray that you would remind us that the, the call is to be a blessing. God, and I pray that in the, as we join you in that mission of being a blessing by pointing others to the ultimate blessing of your son, Jesus, God, I pray that we would find life unending in you. God, thanks that you are good. 
thinks that you have graciously extended your call of life to us. God, help us respond to it. We need you. For our good, for your glory, we pray. Amen.